Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at Northern Soul, a uniquely British phenomenon that kept American soul music alive, brought DJs to a new prominence, and brought crate diggers to the forefront. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. And this is your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness. To continue our series, we're calling the Let It Roll. What are we calling it? The Technocast? The Techno Let roll. It Roll. Techno roll. The techno roll. Yes, the techno roll. This is our extended conversation about the book Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. Today we're talking about Northern Soul. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Northern Soul, not a musical cul-de-sac, despite the strange pants these uh, Northern Brits were wearing as they danced to failed soul music basically you want to give a brief history or you want me to define northern soul yeah i can kind of give it a give it a shot the interesting thing to me about northern soul is uh as nate was kind of saying is that it was it's kind of a, it, a, a a musical throwback um you had all these uh these kids from the northern northern portion of england listening to uh records uh, from 60s uh, America, which were no longer in vogue anymore, possibly really never in vogue in America whatsoever. And uh, just somebody somebody kind of picked it up and started playing it in uh, northern England and all the kids really got into it. And so all of a sudden, a really strange subgenre of uh, of music kind of ended up uh, exploding in the north of England. And uh, and uh, it just turned into like this first really exciting scene, not just for these kids, but for these DJs pushing the sound. 
Yeah, that's the thing. It was musically retro in that they were playing basically Motown imitations, records that had never been popular in the 60s, not popular in the States, not popular in England. But they had kids who wanted to dance to up-tempo soul music because they were taking speed and they wanted to go all night and they were not into the new rock sounds coming out of London. They were not into funk. They were not into the Philly sound, uh, the, the, the things that took over from Motown-style soul in the early 70s in the U.S. Uh, and the importance of it, though, is this is one of the first DJ-driven musical scenes and a number of elements that will later be big parts of our story start here and it's kind of the uk analog to disco in fact one of these clubs we're going to talk about the wigan the casino in wigan um won billboard's best discotheque in the world award in 1978 which you think of as as a high watermark you would expect someplace in new york city to be uh, the world's best discotheque in 1978 but you know these kids were doing it it was dj driven and they were dancing all night. There were no live bands. And, and the scene, I think one of the virtues that they, they play up in, the, in this chapter is because there was no new music driving this scene, they were digging up old records. There's no commercialization. There's no pressures from the record industry. There's no new stars to promote, no need for crossover hits, although they did produce a series of, of hits. A number of these songs at first were unearthed by Northern Soul Scenesters were re-released in this time period and became chart hits in the UK and a couple of them even in the US. Um, let's see, anything else we need to hit? Not a music, oh, the crate digger phenomenon. And so they call them train spotters in this. That's a Brit, British locution, but in, in the States we'd call them crate diggers. And this was the first scene where DJs put a real permanent, not just DJs, but the dancers too, put a real emphasis on who's got the rarest records. And the DJ's whole reputation and career could be made if they got their hands on the right record. Um, what do we One want of the to interesting things about that was uh, the, the actual advertisements for the events obviously would have, you know, where it is and, and who's playing, but uh, most prominently featured would be uh, certain records, artists, and labels that, that, that were going to be getting played. And that was what the real... Uh, the real appeal was there'd be guys who would put, you know, uh, they just found a, a, a really great new record and they, they say debuting this record at this event. And that's what was getting the kids out. So this was this is the interesting thing about Northern Soul is there's a real push and pull between I, I feel like the official outside view of it and even even something that bill brewster kind of falls into in in his book was was they a lot of talking about how this is just like a bunch of uh you know uh next generation mods uh hopped up on amphetamines uh going crazy all weekends but i mean there there's very clearly a, a very engaged audience that wasn't just into these because they were stombards there was there was a serious love for this music there was a serious uh, attempt to collect this music and find new music and uh, and a real appreciation for it uh, that, that i that i feel sometimes gets lost like when we're talking about northern soul i i feel like a lot of people are just imagining something right out of that uh uh, that documentary Reefer Madness, where 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 you're imagining a black and white shot of a kid with his teeth 
bared and his eyes buggy, just dancing like a maniac. Uh, and, and that's all this scene was, was just a bunch of people from dead end Northern England uh, getting uh, getting crazy. And, you know, obviously there's a portion of that, but having come from scenes that used to have the same kind of uh, uh, stereotypical uh, outside in look like that, I mean, you, you've got to imagine in the 70s, uh, these kids all coming together for these big 2000 person uh, Northern Soul all-nighters. This 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 must have been uh, such a revolutionary personal and musical experience. And uh, one one of the things that I feel really made it different from from a lot of other uh, and probably made it better is that when you think about you know uh, the rave scene being a departure from some of the more aggressive club landscapes because they specifically said no alcohol. Well, think about in Northern Soul. There, there was a, a specific split in, in maybe the vibe that you were getting because they were playing black music and that just inherently got rid of the racists. So you had this scene full of forward-looking, uh, open-minded kids all getting together. And that's why, like, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of the people say this was the first rave scene was because it was so open and uh, open-minded and, and, and loving. And a lot of those old plur elements probably came out before, you know, the name was given, you know? Yeah, although let's not get, uh, apologies for the dog, um, but let's not get too carried away. Just because you're listening to black music doesn't necessarily mean you're the wokest of the woke, or, but it still does, it is a good sign. And, and this was happening contemporaneously to the suede head movement and the emergence of the skinhead movement, which, was not necessarily a, a racist movement. In fact, it was it was people who were really into Jamaican music that were, were the first skinheads, but they were also very racist against Pakistani immigrants. So a lot of complicated stuff going on, and we should define our terms. So one thing that's confusing about Northern Soul is it's it's named for the people who liked it, the people in the north of England, not the people who made it, who are people in the north of the United States, because it's music primarily made in Detroit and Chicago, as opposed to the sort of 60s soul that was made in Memphis or New Orleans, the sort of dirtier, funkier soul from Stax and other record labels. Um, but let's get into the actual history of it. And and the first club that they identify is a place called the Twisted Wheel in Manchester, which opened pretty early for our story. It's 1963, opens up, closes in 1971, and it's you know kind of the hallmark of it is this is a place where the original r&b flag never went down these were kids who liked american soul and rhythm and blues and did not dig the late 60s blues revival the psychedelic stuff the the underground rock scene that dominated london after 67 or 68 and that there was a particular dj roger eagle who was into all kinds of african-american music he was into jazz. He was he was into up tempo soul, obviously, but he was also into hardcore blues, and he felt that the kids' desire to dance to up tempo stuff forced him to push this northern soul. And so, Ryan, I've been struggling with this. Do we want to play the Motown song that they view the temp as the template for all northern soul, or do we want to go into one of the more obscure songs that they they uncredited? You make the call right now. I say let's go obscure because it still captures that uh, that upbeat, positive, cheesy element that really makes uh, Northern Soul its thing. 
Okay, cool. So the song, the Motown song that, 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 that is sort of the absolute template for Northern Soul is the Four Tops, I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch by Holland Dozier. Holland, but let's play Gloria Jones' Tainted Love. And that was Gloria Jones' Tainted Love, a classic example of a Northern Soul. This was a song that was not a hit when it originally released, I believe, in 1964, and uh, later comes out charts in England. And then there's a f- famous 1980 soft sell cover of the song as well. That, you know, this is to me the definitive Northern Soul song. One of the big things about this song that that made it so popular, apparently, was that there's a very uh, elaborate clapping routine that you can kind of pick up and, and carry through the entire track. It comes in and it drops out and it comes back in. Everybody just locked into it. And apparently it was it was just the trippiest thing. Uh, in the middle of the night, it come on and everybody just clapping together for it. You can only imagine the, that would be a pretty cool thing to hear on the dance floor. Absolutely, especially if you're in giant baggy pants. Those pictures of the kids <laughs> in the giant baggy pants uh, just absolutely slay me. Um, so we've got the Twisted Wheel, which lasts until 1971, and they note that it was crushed by the Manchester police because it was such a notorious drug hotbed. And and this is the, the second time in the Let It Roll history that I've run across the Manchester police as uh, – as bad guys on the scene and effectively they snuffed out the original 60s beat group scene now they're crushing northern soul and later on uh when we get to talking about the post-punk stuff they're going to be bad guys again and when ryan and i get to the rave era in the in the 80s the manchester police are going to be coming back so the introduction of a, of a major villain in our tale um and then and then again the twisted wheel was one of the first it didn't it didn't perfect the scene they they say they describe it as as igniting a fad and then there's a second club in wolverhampton and apologies for mispronouncing all these these names we're we're yanks here but farmer carl dj farmer carl dean was the first dj that they credit as being a train spotter a crate digger and and really got into unearthing this stuff and then they go to tunstall where the torch turns it from a into a fetish from a fad they say they polished the steel at tunstall and that's where artists like major lance and brenda holloway who had had hits but it had been a long time actually came over to england and performed live and i think we'll play a major lance song uh, a little bit later any comments about these early clubs right well it's just uh, interesting how you know uh Reading, reading through this book, obviously there are different club scenes. I, I, I say the club scenes uh, uh, go hand in hand with a lot of these uh, these music scenes. But this was really a, an, an interesting situation because again, you're you're going back in time. Uh, you, you're not following the musical trends. You you've created one, and then basically everybody was copying uh, the twisted wheel. The twisted wheel format looked good, and so they took that and they copied it. And all of a sudden, you have a scene of people going around. And uh, you, you start to see a rigidity in, in, in what these people are demanding musically. Uh, like uh, like the, that DJ Eagle guy was basically saying, 
he felt like he was being forced to play this very specific thing. Otherwise, people would would boo him out of the building. So it's uh, very interesting to me how it's like uh, turned into a, a, a very specific kind of subgenre that clubs picked up and had to play a specific kind of format for. And uh, then you got a guy, uh, Ian Levine. He was uh, such a, a big part of the development of Northern Soul because he was a rich kid and he could fly to America and he could uh, crate dig himself over there. And uh, the book talks specifically about a time where he came back with a crate with crates with about like 4000 songs. And that being the biggest infusion of music into the northern soul scene, the biggest single kind of point where everything really started to explode. And another thing that I think it's important to mention is this is the first scene we know of that's migratory, where it's not just kids in Wolverhampton. It's not that there's such a massive scene in Wolverhampton. It's that kids from all over the north of England are are going to these clubs. They're driving across. And this was pretty difficult at this time. The highway, the modern English highway system was just being built at this point. Uh, it's It's more advanced than it was when the Beatles were touring England 10 years earlier, but it's still pretty difficult to get around northern England but the kids are doing it and they're going to these relatively small towns and um, I think it's pretty appropriate that one of the biggest clubs was was named Mecca the DJ Ian Levine you mentioned was playing at, at the Mecca in Blackpool which is perfect I mean people are making pilgrimages to hear this music and they get into uh, a big chunk of this chapter is this rivalry between the Blackpool Mecca which they describe as you know the place for the connoisseurs and Ian Levine is is the guy who's who's the tastemaker who's able to introduce records that maybe are a little bit outside the very strict confines of the formula but their big rival is the weekend casino which at its peak and I already mentioned that they were named the best discotheque in the world uh, by Billboard in 78 but at its peak they had a hundred thousand members of the club that's people who paid dues and I guess they had you know alcohol laws or whatever the restrictions that you had to pay a be a member of the club and that's what that's where the type of club comes from and some that's something that has members and a lot of times we use that indiscriminately with bar or pub these days we don't think about it you know you go down to the club you don't think about oh you have to you know join and become an official member but and weekend apparently you did and a hundred thousand people did it uh which is which is pretty impressive and and the casino was the punter's favorite that's where the really big crowds came to dance and they had uh, a lineup of multiple djs russ winstonley was the first then kev roberts comes on and richard searing and the three of them at their peak, at least according to Roberts, could give Levine a go. Do you want to tell the story of how Kev Roberts became a DJ? Do you remember that one? Uh, no, no, no. I'm not. Uh, I, I don't. All right. So to... he, he went to the opening night at, at the casino and Winston Lee was playing and, and they thought, you know, he's OK, but he didn't really he wasn't a crate digger. He didn't have the rare records. And, and so Robert's friends went up to the owners and were like, you know, this is great and all, but our friend Kev should really you should really give him a chance. And they did. And the guy busted out. Um, I don't know if it was this night. I assume it was another night. He comes back with his with his box of rare records, throws them on blows it up and and becomes a dj so it's very interesting it's like the dj superpower is not unlike a musician it's not what can you do it's what do you have and then what do you do with what you've got but this 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 crate digging thing becomes a total earmark of the scene that we'll talk about all the way through this series um, the access to records is a really interesting kind of uh element of it because obviously back in uh, the late 60s early 70s it wasn't uh 
these are these are things where you know there's maybe 50 of these records in existence all around the world and how the hell are you going to get them as some guy in in, in the north of england and uh it, it's really intriguing to me how uh how the whole system kind of came up and how they had people going over to America. There was a, there was a point where they were talking about the 57 pound ticket to, to New York. And that being another time where all of a sudden you had a bunch of DJs flying to America to literally look for the next uh, hit at the back of some, some obscure store. Cause obviously over in America, no one, no one gave a damn about these tracks. So you could find them in a bargain bin over there. But, uh, over over in the UK, over in England, uh, these 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 things are going for fifteen pounds a piece, uh, which is quite a lot in the seventies. And there's one record that they that they go into, and and we can go ahead and play it, and I'll pull it up. This is um, Frank Wilson's "Do I Love You," which they call the rarest record in the world, or it was at the time. Frank Wilson, "Do I Love You." was Frank Wilson's Do I Love You, which was known at the time as the rarest record in the world. And apparently it was imported to England. And then they printed acetates of it, which are which are temporary records that will play a few dozen times before the needle wears out the groove. And, you know, they didn't bootleg it. They just made a special DJ acetate only. And, and, and the, the, guy, the kid who found it passed it out to a few select DJs. And then they play these acetates. And they, and they get into this whole cult thing some of these were practices that they brought over from Jamaica where they would steam the labels off records or they would uh, misdescribe records. They would make up a name for the artist and, and change the name of the song. And so there's this competitive aspect where the DJs are you know, protecting their game. And it makes me think, we'll talk about DJ Cool Herc in the Bronx and the birth of hip hop but in a, in a chapter or two. But we've talked about it on that show before. And DJ Cool Herc was of the ethos that he's a Jamaican. Uh, immigrant to america and he was of the ethos that i don't tell you what's in my stack man you're gonna have to if you recognize it with your ears that's fine but i'm not going to tell you what it is i'm going to take the labels off of them so there's this conflict in the english scene between people who want to popularize the scene and and publicize these artists and then djs who have a vested interest in and in keeping their stash secret that's uh, really just, uh, you know, the money coming into it all and screwing everything up. Uh, you know, obviously, as a DJ, my, my whole attitude towards it is that the big point it isn't supposed to be pushing yourself as a DJ. It's supposed to be pushing the music. But, you know, in the reality of it, uh, in, a, in a scene like you had with Northern Soul, uh, where you're only as good as the rare records that you have, of course, there's going to be a, a ton of people trying to obfuscate and hide uh, where they're getting this stuff from and trying to keep uh, keep other people from basically stealing their sound. And uh, I, I don't like it, but uh, you understand exactly why it's going on. And it, it, it happens all throughout all the different genres. I mean, uh, back when I was big into trance music, you had a whole bunch of the biggest trance DJs were basically part of record pools of unreleased tracks. And uh, no one was allowed to give them out outside of the, the chosen few. And that always pissed me off as just a common guy from a from a small town. Uh, so I was more than happy to take anything I could find, rip it and and bootleg it and play it out 
just to just to just to stick it to these people who try to keep things exclusive, you know, because it's really about spreading the music in my book at the end of the day, getting in front of as many people as possible. So if I could trip up anybody who was trying to hide the nature of the music, I definitely enjoyed that. Yeah, although that's that's something that becomes a hallmark of the of the dance club scene for a reason. I think that there's a uh, there's an innate appeal of feeling like I'm hearing music that you cannot hear anywhere else, and that's making this time and this place very special. That this is the only time these people are going to come together to hear this very rare and obscure music. So I can kind of see both sides of it, but I generally agree with you that that it's just you know BS to to hide music and obscure music and, and just to get over and have a, a temporary business advantage. Um, and another phenomenon that comes out of this is not only do you have old records being reissued by record companies who kind of have their ear to the ground and, and getting some chart action, but you in Wigan, you have a couple of new acts, The Chosen Few or Wigan's Chosen Few and, and Wigan's Ovation that actually produce new Northern Soul songs and if you've ever listened to say John Savage talking about the kind of English pop music that that inspired the punk rock backlash this is exactly the kind of stuff this is this is corny novelty songs that have none of the grit or soul of of the northern soul stuff but you know, uh, there's some great video on top of the pops from the 70s of, of kids in the giant baggy pants dancing to, um, I think it's called Footsie by Wigan's Chosen Few. So that's a pretty interesting thing. And, and you can definitely see where if that was your exposure to it, this is definitely a musical cul-de-sac. You know, some scenes, some retro scenes produce immediate creativity you know the the british blues revival immediately starts producing the rolling stones or the pretty things all these innovative bands coming out of london northern soul was not doing that innovation was happening on the dance floor the innovation is happening in the clubs and the practices it's not a direct musical thing and as the trend continues i mean this thing goes on for over a decade digging up old records and eventually they run out of old soul records and ian levine is one of the first to start introducing more contemporary uh disco songs where at the blackpool mecca whereas at the casino and weekend they're strictly sticking to the formula yeah and this is where uh it, it's an interesting situation because uh, ian levine is still going to america he's still going to new york city and he's experiencing that disco explosion uh which when it when it first started uh, obviously wasn't the uh, the crass commercial uh lowest common denominator stuff that it, that it ended up turning into that, that so many people have stuck in their heads uh he saw an authentic scene with an authentic sound and he wanted to bring that back and and do that and i'm sure half of it had to do with the fact that he was sick of tired, sick and tired of of playing one very specific kind of uh, sound, um, so he was he was trying to take things in a new direction, and he was doing that uh, basically from within a seat in a scene that was demanding specific a northern soul sound, and uh, it, it created a, a big rift in the scene because you had all of the other. Uh, you you had an established scene that wanted an established sound, and he was trying to drag it, kicking and screaming, uh, towards uh, something that he was interested in. And uh, you know, it, it's an it's an interesting story. And he even even he admits afterwards that he let his ego kind of uh, get in the way of or 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 basically kind of mess up what what they had going there because uh, he was just over what was originally going on. 
Yeah, it was interesting. He 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 said he regretted taking an axe and cleaving the scene in half. And they describe people actually bringing banners to the clubs and and decrying him and his new music. So it it's you know people are passionate about their music, and this scene was very hardcore these were kids who wanted to dance to a specific sound and they and they were willing to buck the trends of time and tide and when somebody tried to pull them out of that they resisted not violently but they resisted and and it's interesting that there was a split there but regardless the whole scene um is sputtering out by the early 80s and 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 and, and morphs into new forms and levine is is a leader on that and and i do find it really interesting that this is, in many ways, the English analog to disco, and we'll get to disco in a couple chapters after we do reggae. But I mean, it is a disco in the technical definition of it's a club where a DJ is playing records so that people can dance to music rather than a live band. But there's a genre of music derived from Philly soul that um, we now know as disco, and this stuff was obviously not that, although. Levine was introducing elements to that. So it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And let's take a brief, a brief break and hear from our sponsor and come back. And we're back. And so um, I feel like we're kind of chewing through this one fast. So I'm kind of tempted to play some extra music. Um, you want to hear uh, Major Lance live at the Torch in Tunstall in 1972? This was Major Lance was a um, I wouldn't call him an acolyte of Curtis Mayfield, but he was somebody whose records were written and produced by Curtis Mayfield, the great singer-songwriter and leader of the Impressions in Chicago in the 60s. And, you know, he hadn't had a hit in six or seven years and becomes a big star in this northern soul scene. And they actually bring him out, back him up with a British pickup band. And uh, this is this is a reprised version of a 1972 version of his 1960s hit, um, 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 um. Here's Major Put Lance. some real soul into the, into the name <laughs> of that song there. I've always been baffled by that title, but yeah, Major Lance does it much more justice than I do. Major Lance live at the Torch in Tunstall, um, 1972, doing um 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 um. Was that better? Yeah, yeah. There you go. I like that. A, a little better. And 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 it's a classic English scenario. I mean, you you. This is something that happened uh, over and over again, where you had you know Jerry Lee Lewis playing with the Nashville Teens backing him up, or Sonny Boy Williamson playing with the Yardbirds backing him up. Major Lance comes to England, and they get kind of a random pickup band. And if you listen closely, you can tell that the band does not have much of a feel for this but the the crowd passion is so high major lance's performance is so kicking that it's 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 an interesting listen uh to get some some struggle uh you can hear that struggle going on in the music and, and it's pretty fun and and this is something that we'll see again in in the acid house period where the british fans 
are reverential of African-American performers. They want to see, they want to know about the black performers who made the music they love. They want to bring them over and see them. And, and the same thing that would happen with Chicago house DJs and producers and Detroit techno DJs and producers being brought over to England in the early days of the acid house movement to play. Um, you know, it's very much like Brian Jones uh, bringing over Muddy Waters, or he didn't bring over Muddy Waters, but celebrating Muddy Waters and, and telling people about Muddy Waters and other performers. So it's something about the English where they recognize the greatness of black American music in a way that Americans, especially white Americans, often don't. But black Americans often don't either. I mean, Major Lance was forgotten, you know, definitely had no honor in his homeland in the funk era. Once, once you've got James Brown and Sly Stone and that whole wave of late 60s, early 70s funk, nobody wanted to know about Motown soul anymore. Um, it, was, it, was, it was over and especially you know, off-brand Motown imitation soul was not getting was not getting much love in that period yeah it's pretty wild that it's it, it was basically a dead genre by the time it got kind of resurfaced and uh and it's kind of unfortunate obviously that that the northern soul scene wasn't powerful enough to kind of kickstart a, a revival uh which is kind of what i was wondering why that never happened but it was just you know because the 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 if it wasn't authentic, if it was, if it wasn't from North America, if it wasn't being played by, uh, by written and 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 performed by Black people, then they, they weren't too interested in it. It uh, there was there was uh, a certain amount of snobbery in there, and people really uh, gatekeep were gatekeepers on what was considered real Northern Soul or not. Uh, throwaway line in the book or in a documentary that I watched on Northern Soul is someone arguing that there's basically 200 real Northern Soul records out there and the rest isn't really northern soul and uh, when you think about these tracks being you know two and a half minutes long each you got to figure that uh, that's pretty exclusive thinking for for a scene that that prided itself on all-nighters yeah it's, it's interesting i think another factor that that inhibited it from become from expanding on the music was it was a dj scene it wasn't about live bands so that so that you know to be fair to somebody like weekend's chosen few they probably didn't get a ton of chances to sharpen their abilities you know like the the beatles got to play at the cavern every lunch hour for months where they played in hamburg eight hours a night so they got to really hone their act um same thing with the rolling stones in london they, they got to play in these clubs and there was no competition from records if people wanted to hear the blues in london you had to go down to the marquee club and see the rolling stones or cyril davies or somebody like that with northern soul you're always going to be competing with Gloria Jones and and you know Major Lance and all these people that and so it's very difficult and I think that was a big factor in them not producing um, more scenes. So let's go ahead and drop another and one. There was a lot of shit talking too in, in the book. Uh, there were there were moments where they were talk about okay we we're, we're playing Northern Soul and then this guy comes in and he starts playing this or that or Wigan's chosen viewing can you believe how terrible that is and you, you take a listen to it and you say okay I, I can see how this is uh this is kind of a sellout version of of, of northern soul but the the abject rejection of, of everything that doesn't fit into that very specific upbeat motown sound uh and that straight four four uh it was it's it was extreme and uh, i mean like it's uh, to me it's it's not that's that's what made me not surprised that the whole thing kind of fizzled out is because it was so it got so rigid and it became a part of its own 
because Northern Soul was, was to a degree a rejection of, of all things popular. And in the end, it kind of uh, it drowned in its own uh, inability to to advance or evolve because it had gotten so rigid from the from from the roots, from the beginnings, from the DJs that actually kind of locked it in there. Exactly. And let's go ahead. This is looking like it's going to be a short episode. So let's go ahead and, and hear one more tune. This is Wigan's Chosen Few and their infamous hit Footsie. That's what the Wigan's Chosen Few, that's what Imitation Northern Soul sounded like. Footsie. Um, yeah, it's 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 not the same thing. And and you can you can definitely hear it, but I highly recommend getting on YouTube and checking out the videos of these kids and these crazy pants. Um, I, I guess it made it very easy to dance and you know chew up some prellies and and hit the dance floor and they also talk about talcum powder a lot the, the dance floors were covered with talcum powder so people would drive long distances to go to these clubs they would change into their fine their finery and then they would dance all night and get covered in sweat and talcum powder and then back into their cars in cold chilly wet dreary england so it's very hard with this remove of time and distance to really imagine what it was like, but um, there's a lot of video, and the video, you know, like uh, if you if you Google the the Wigan Casino and you get a get a look in, there was a lot of uh, documentaries made at the time that kind of blew up Northern Soul as a uh, as a phenomenon uh, that kind of contributed to the Wigan Casino being, you know, the the big thing that it was. And at, at its peak, there were two thousand people in there. Uh, dancing up a storm every every weekend, which is uh, pretty impressive, uh, you know, going back to 1970s. Yeah, and I think I think that the the also one other point we should make is that the musical legacy of this stuff, groups like Soft Cell in the 80s, and groups like Wham and Prefab Sprout, and and so many of these other bands that emerged in the 80s. Um, consciously and explicitly drew on Northern Soul as an influence, even though their sound, you know, heavily synth based and, and 80s gated drums and they they broke away from the, the strict 4-4 stomp beat, but they were consciously drawing on influences from Northern Soul. So I wouldn't want to say it was a complete musical dead end. Um, and obviously it wasn't in that that it lays the groundwork for the for the rave scene and the acid house scene that's going to revolutionize world music in the 80s. But um you know, so it did have it did have some of the kind of musical influences you would expect from a regular scene. So and even even now, there's some new stuff coming out. Well, new you know, Farrell's Happy is considered a, an example of modern Northern Soul, and then Amy Winehouse uh, touched on Northern Soul quite a bit. Her song Jolene is is straight up Northern Soul. Yes, absolutely, and this stuff. Both of those songs are what, 10, 15 years old? <laughs> like, yeah, I know. I was like, I thought this was like modern, like like modern and right up there. And then I realized, no, I'm just old. Yep, yep. It, it happens to all of us, and it happens fast. So, kids, watch out. It's going to happen to you too. Any final thoughts on Northern Soul before we wrap this one up? 
Uh, you know, just just as far as it it, it being a, a very interesting kind of scene, and it being you know a, a lot of firsts as far as uh, how it how it was DJ driven, how the how a DJ found a sound and really delved into it, and it create uh, an entire archi- uh, architecture around it of of followers and and and, and people buying these records and, and the whole thing kind of exploding. You're going to see this a lot in, in, in lesser form. Uh, in in the rave scene with all of the genres kind of coming out of a generalized dance umbrella but the cool thing about northern soul was just how how big it got and uh and that that's kind of the most interesting thing to me is that there was a there there was a desire for this kind of musical scene to come out of uh what was always then and now uh they keep on repeating this was the dreary asshole of of english culture like everybody living up there they were living in the the nihilistic no uh no reason to exist uh industrial end of the world and it's very interesting how they really ram that down is that there was nothing to do but work at the cement factory and 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 then get into these scenes so i i found all of that very fascinating as a, as a proto dance culture yeah, and it's important to remember also this is a period of economic decline in England, and and the deindustrialization starts at the end of our of this period, you know, seventy three to eighty one, and you know Margaret Thatcher comes in in the late seventies and starts shutting down the the factories. But even before that, they're dogged with endless strikes. Um, the the there's a massive economic downturn related to the to the oil shortages of the early seventies, and so this is a pretty grim time in British history, and this was a way for people to dance their troubles away. And one last thing I want to mention, sort of a technical point, is that a lot of the DJ techniques that we're going to be talking about a lot, like blending records or keeping the beat going forever, that was not being done here, at least as far as I can tell. They were just playing the three, four-minute song as a song in its entirety and then playing the next one. They had two turntables, so I assume they were fading in and out without breaks, but they... um, we're not doing any of this sort of the technical stuff that we're going to be hearing out hearing yeah, about. Maybe there was one or two DJs that had one or two tracks that they could kind of uh, sit next to each other, so it sounded like a, a nice transition. But for for the most part, uh, you know, if if a track isn't made uh, to DJ, you're going to have a hard time DJing it unless it's a quick cut. So uh, you know, no disrespect to these guys, they were they were undoubtedly uh, you know doing the DJ thing, just uh, just not as far as actual like uh, beat matching and, and transition, which is to me like uh, a, a very oversold element of DJing to begin with, anyways, from people who don't really know uh, what they're ah. talking about. Oh, I, that, that which would be me, and so I'm, I'm in, I'll be interested to hear that in future episodes because I'm always fascinated by that that stuff. But yeah, this stuff was done with live drummers, so the the tempos are going to vary within the song, and um, much less having the same exact tempo song to song so you couldn't do something like frankie knuckles would be doing in chicago in a few years where you're running a drum machine along with the records at the same time and uh, just keeping keeping the energy and bringing the energy up and uh adding uh you know taking taking it that way in in, in a form of programming that that's what these guys were definitely doing and of course you can't uh, can't argue against somebody who has like you know one of the only copies of an amazing piece of music in the world and playing it for you that's just the best absolutely and they do talk about certain sequences like there's a a trio of bobby freeman songs around the the dance 
crazed the swim where they would play it in a specific order because the tempos increased as they went and you know so there was definitely the art of dj was being practiced they were they were building tempos they were paying attention to what the audience was reacting to and and rocking the house so um i think that's our episode on northern soul ryan will be back next time and we'll go to jamaica and talk about reggae which is a music that i had no idea was a dj driven culture until i read this book so really excited to talk about that one follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it rollcast and check out our website at let it rollpodcast.com Nate and Ryan will be back next week to discuss Jamaica's unique sound system scene, which spurred the creation of ska, reggae, and dub, and directly influenced the creation of hip-hop. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. <laughs>